Welcome to The Money Movement. I'm super excited today to be joined by Nick Carter. Nick, great to see you again. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Hello. Yeah, awesome. There's so much I want to talk to you about. And uh, I, I enjoy whenever I see you, hear you, when you're tweeting, all kinds of stuff. You're just, I, I think you've got such fresh and fun perspective on a lot of things and very deep perspective on a lot of things. So thank you for, for making the time for having this conversation today. Of course. Yeah. Second time. Second yeah, time. Second time. I know. Yeah. I know. Watch out. Um, <laughs> third time's a charm. We'll see when, when that happens. Um, Bitcoin at a million, uh, you know. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, no, absolutely. So for for just very as a refresher, like very quickly, um, for for folks that are that are listening or watching, maybe do the the thirty second. Um, who is Nick Carter uh, for, for a moment, and then we'll dive into some of the key themes. Sure. So uh, general partner at Castle Island Ventures, uh, we are uh, seed and uh, Series A uh, venture firm uh, focusing on startups in the public blockchain industry. Based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm in Miami. Uh, so I recently, <laughs> recently decamped down here. Um, rest of the firm is uh, is mostly in the Northeast. Yeah, we like to say our headquarters is the internet, and so you know I we no longer say it's Boston or this or that because it's actually like pretty distributed now, right? So, it's the metaverse. Yeah, the met- metaverse. I, mean, I guess I should change it to the headquarters is the metaverse. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of distributed, um, also co-founded CoinMetrics, which is a crypto data company, which is fully distributed uh, by design. And we did that, you know, long before COVID struck, and we sort of had a, a feeling that that might be the dominant model going forwards, and uh, that turned out to be the case. Yeah. Uh, so those are sort of the the main two things that I do. That's awesome. I, I actually I want to come back to distributed economic organization and on-chain economic organizations and, you know, kind of the experiments, the huge laboratory we have around that. Um, and, uh, but, but that's, that's maybe for later in the episode. Um, but um, I mean, look, I, I think one of the things that you're, I think, really well known for is your, I mean, you, you have a very deep, long conviction about Bitcoin um, and among many other themes. And I, I thought it'd be interesting to just start with, um, you know, y- your your most up to date narrative uh, on your 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 core long thesis on Bitcoin. Um, and I know for a lot of people, it's sort of like something that people have had strong conviction about for a very very long time. But it sort of continues to get refined as the world evolves. Um, as we're seeing, as as Bitcoin reacts to the world and the world reacts to Bitcoin, um, it's, it's truly fascinating, right? Because we just achieve these new milestones, not just price, but other things that just blow our minds. Like when we, I know you were involved really early, but maybe just you know talk about your 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 long thesis there. Where do you think we are on that today? How how soon will you know, the majority of G20 central banks hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Wow. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't get asked that that much anymore. Um, you know, my my updated long thesis on Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I'm obviously I'm still bullish Bitcoin. I guess 
we should periodically ask ourselves, you know, has Bitcoin met the the thresholds or do we expect it to meet? And um, where is it in its growth cycle? And um, I think it's it's matured a great deal. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's it's, you know, an early um, you know, highly asymmetric bet the way it was three or five years ago. I mean, it's it's got a huge amount of traction and momentum, and uh, the the return profile looks different today. Um, but I still think it's obviously a great thing to own, uh, especially on a forward looking basis, confronted with sort of the macro uh, outlook, um, and um, you know what what seems likely uh, from a kind of uh, debt monetization inflation perspective here. Uh, so, you know, I continue to obviously own Bitcoin and, and uh, happy to do that for the foreseeable. Um, in terms of sort of updated narratives, I think right now Bitcoin is pretty exposed to what happens in the broader macro context. Um, and that may not be the most comfortable situation to be in, but I think it is the case. So if you look at the correlations, it's not sort of highly correlated with risk on assets, but it has had periods of positive correlation in the last 24 months, especially throughout 2020. Um, and uh, that was perturbing to me because, you know, I don't really want to see it behave like a Tesla or a risk on asset. I right. wanted it to, not that I can sort of mandate anything about its yeah. uh, return characteristics, but uh, I was nervous that it would end up being like a risk on asset and then just sell off if anything adverse happened. So it has had those those periods of positive correlation, and which causes a lot of, I think, smart people to dismiss it as a portfolio hedge or anything like that because it doesn't really act like a hedge. We've, we've seen like so many more quote unquote significant macro, global macro investors, asset managers who come out saying, there's a role for this. Here's how to think about it. It's a macro hedge, you know, and that's been like one of the stories of the last year is, you know, Ray Dalio has got a position in Bitcoin, blah, 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 like, you know, all, all that kind of thing. And um, it's just sort of how much of, of, of what it is today is, is sort of a risk on asset versus a, a tr true high conviction kind of long-term hedge asset it's 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 hard to differentiate that obviously yeah that's actually my greatest concern is uh is that it is too risk on and yeah. uh it's too exposed to a very loose liquidity environment and when liquidity tightens up that gets withdrawn from bitcoin rapidly and obviously in march 2020 that was exemplary of that where bitcoin sold off harder than equities right but you know all that said the traditional thinking we have around 60 40 portfolios and normal hedges don't doesn't apply anymore it's not applying so you know people think the stocks and uh, fixed income tend to be anti-correlated but we've seen them uh, selling off together in the last year or so liquidity it sort of becomes the the you know the the, the prime motivator in those situations yeah yeah, so these um, theories that people have that they learn in business school or the CFA about the correlation characteristics and the efficient frontiers, um, they're not really holding up anymore. So I think we kind of need new thinking around 
how to yeah. construct your portfolio, especially as we enter in this period of potentially very, very negative real interest rates. Yeah. Which I think is where we're going. It's sort of where we have to go. I don't see an alternative. And in that world, if if real rates go to minus 10 or deeper, I know that sounds extreme, but I could absolutely see it happening. I think uh, your your store value assets that are custom built to resist monetary repression, whether it's Bitcoin or gold, they do very, very well. And in, in the 70s, you saw gold... Um, you know, do multiples in terms of its return profile in real terms as it became monetized as this asset that people use to protect themselves from inflation effectively. And, you know, not to not to return to this sort of trite analogy of digital gold, but I think Bitcoin, uh, you know, is gaining uh, consensus as an asset that is really suitable to resist a, a new monetary repression that's emerging. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, like, we, we, it has just dramatically more utility value and, 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 and is actually like a financial primitive and an instrument that is extraordinarily useful in, in, in so many ways uh, versus other traditional hedge assets, which are paper based or, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, you're not really, you're not really owning them, and and they don't have any actual utility, right? Um, yeah, so. that's that's sort of the really key difference for me is that you can take your physical ownership of your Bitcoin physical, you know, <laughs> whatever yeah, the no. digital version of physical is, but you can really possess yeah. it, and and that is much unlike virtually any other financial asset out there. Yeah, yeah. So do you do you think um, the rumors of of Putin accumulating? Bitcoin and, and Ether are, are, are true? Well, if I were him, I wouldn't disclose it until I had my position in place. Right? Yeah, clearly. Because yeah. You, like you, you want to monetize it after you have accumulated. But yeah, I think it would be prudent for every central bank to determine what percentage of the world's gold they own and then acquire that exact same percentage of Bitcoin at a minimum. Yeah. Because you don't want to be any worse off than you were right. under the old regime. Right. I and mean, we've, we've seen this, right? We've seen, obviously, it's like this risk on environment. We can argue about that. But we've seen this sort of, um, I, I don't want to say it's an inversion, but, you know, sort of Bitcoin store of value, just basically radically outpacing gold and gold underperforming. And but despite the, the macro and, 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 and monetary inflation risks and debt monetization risks and everything else, gold is not performing. And it, and it does feel like there's been this rotation. And you have to assume if that's the case for a retail investor, an institutional investor, an asset manager, that that would be the case for a, a central bank balance sheet as well. And I don't, I'm not against gold, actually. I actually, I, I don't like it when Bitcoiners feud with gold bugs or anything sure, like that. Of course. I think that yeah. we're pretty much on the same team. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. We just have different ways of expressing our opinion which is generally the same uh, opinion. Um, and I think it's counterproductive to fight. But um, yeah. I mean, if you just look at what's happening, like both uh, central banks and, you know, pension funds and other enormous pools of institutional capital, ex-US, they are divesting dollars and dollar assets. Right. right. Um, and well, there'll be an interesting conversation about how stable coins fit into all that, but they're certainly divesting themselves of treasuries. Yeah. And um you know, if you just look at what is happening, like China stopped buying treasuries, I want to say in 2014, maybe even before that, 
generally speaking, foreign official buyers stopped buying treasuries in the last decade, and they've been net sellers. You've got Russia saying they want to divest all their dollar assets. You know, you've got um, Russia, Mexico, China, Japan, like they're not buying U.S. debt anymore. And the Fed is making up the difference by basically buying the debt. Right. And it, Lynn Eldon has this great um, analogy. She says it's like the chef eating his own cooking. You know, it's like very circular. <laughs> and that's not yeah. sort of the, the basis for, yeah. you know, a functional restaurant economy. <laughs> Well, they're, they're they're supposedly going on a diet announced later this afternoon. We'll see. Uh, yeah, it might it might be like you know one of my diets, like very short lived. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're if you look at what they're doing, they're buying a lot of gold. Their central banks are buying a yeah. lot of gold, and we're not seeing that expressed in the price of gold. But I think it's very indicative. There's still a role for non-state, whether it's inflation resistant or uh, negative rate resistant goods. And, you know, I don't think central banks need to despair. They have plenty of time to get a Bitcoin position that has parity with their gold position because Bitcoin is still worth 10 times less than gold. So they've got all of that time while it's still monetizing to get off zero. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I, it's not like no countries own Bitcoin officially. Like, I think there are four at least. Um, one, we know for absolute certain El Salvador owns Bitcoin. And then you have a few pariah states that um, it's sort of heavily rumored or hinted. Right, they're they mining Bitcoin. or they're, or they're, or they're uh, using their own like cyber attacks to go seize some or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like the names, you know, you strictly want to be co-investing yeah. with. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, they've understood that this is a thing that is, that they can truly own and, and the, you know, the U.S. can't sort of confiscate from them very easily. Well, there's so many things to ladder off of, of, of that a lot of those thoughts. And I think um, one is, uh, you know, sort of how far down the curve of, of crypto assets will, how many of these crypto assets will be commodity money, right? Um, and obviously the ETH maxis feel very, very strongly that that ETH is a superior form of, of, of digital commodity money, it functionally and, and, and things like that. And there's the, the obviously the rollover uh, that's coming into uh in, in into the new version or kind of almost new version of of ethereum um and you know kind of arguing that it will have these de deflationary characteristics and um and it has more utility value and 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 so on um i i mean i i don't want to like uh uh drag out from you like you know this is better than this that's not 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 my goal at all um but um is there a portfolio construction mechanism here from a sound money, non-sovereign commodity money perspective um, in this space? And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm using nation states as, as, a, as a proxy for, you know, kind of how the whole world might adapt and, and think about these things over, over the long run. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it is very Hayekian to have a world of dueling uh, actually, what Hayek wanted was a number of sort of fiat monies that were competing, right. um, but sort of uh, privately issued uh, right. fiat monies, competitive. And he thought that they would compete on actually their um, price stability characteristics. Yeah. So yeah. their ability to hold value. And of course, it's interesting that now we have 
commodity monies, digital commodity monies competing on how deflationary they can be, right. which is actually sort of not what Hayek thought yeah. would happen. And so in some senses, his vision is actually much more consistent with the world of many different competing stable coins yes. that have different units of account. Yeah. Um, so it might be the dollar, one might be indexed to CPI, one, one might be, be to yeah. commodity basket or something. Whatever it is. Or or they're 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 based, they're pricing effectively the the, the risk of the reserves in different ways, right? Right. Uh, right. Whatever the that is, yeah. But it when he wrote it, um it was sort of quite theoretical. Um yeah. and that was one of the first, it was one of the things I read back in twenty twelve. Um, you know, as I was like trying to think about all of all of this, and I, I I read extensively read von Hayek when I was in college, and you know, and, and so he was always a, a thinker that I respected a lot for for a lot of things. But um, but it was when I was stumbling into this space, I was like, oh my god, look at look at this, you know, he's you know written about this, but um, yeah, very very different set of ideas there, but very very relevant here in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in some sense that, you know, it's thrilling that, uh, you know, the denationalization of money is kind of occurring, um, at least in part. Yeah. Um, but I also think that we have insufficient appreciation for some of the monetary thinkers in these conversations where their ideas are salient, even though they weren't writing about cryptocurrency per se, they didn't know it would exist. Um. Like, for instance, in the discussion of Ethereum versus Bitcoin from a monetary perspective. So on the one hand, Ethereum will likely figure out how to become uh, more disinflationary or even possibly deflationary in the monetary sense. Now, of course, if I'm being pedantic, I would say uh, deflation is more a function of the uh, sort of aggregate price level. Mm -hmm. And so you would say if the coin is appreciating, it's experiencing deflation. So you could say ETH is deflationary today. Yeah. Right. But there's right. just the two definitions right. of, of inflation. Um, and it's funny that we use the monetary. Yes, it's all it's all relative to <laughs> what and, and what's the real world purchasing power. Uh, you know, you have to always yeah. measure against purchasing power of, of real, real world goods and services. And like, yes, yeah, so, I mean, so under that definition, both Bitcoin and ETH are just structurally deflationary, even though they have positive monetary inflation. But yeah, right. We right. don't have to have that debate right now. Curve are you looking at, kind of thing, right? Yeah, is it the, the the curve against the dollar or the curve against itself, right? I certainly think that um, Ethereum will be able to achieve that—a less um, issuance-heavy sort of outlook for sure. Um, and you know, I think they'll be successful in that transition um, away from proof of work to a proof of stake model. Uh, moving towards sort of a roll-up space, scaling model. I have a bit of a contrarian view. I don't think that will reduce fees on Ethereum mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. But, you know, I think generally speaking, they'll sort of achieve their objectives. And then the question is, you know, do they have more monetary credibility uh, than a Bitcoin where it, Bitcoin just sort of has these ordained rules and we adhere to them and we expect them to hold indefinitely? Uh, whereas Ethereum has a kind of a design philosophy, but less rigid rules. Right. And um, they're optimizing for other things like sustainability of uh, the miner or validator budget. And, um, you know, they'll tune the monetary policy around that. To, so, you know, it's just a sort of more multivariate um, design analysis. 
Um, and so I think if you think back to the sort of pre-crypto monetarist literature and and you you look at what a lot a lot of these thinkers were looking for, it often centers on these um, can we design a monetary rule that satisfies a few you know criteria? It uh, produces price stability. It's sort of apolitical. It eliminates discretion, political uh, discretion. It creates an independence for you know the authority of the central bank or whatever it is. Right. And is such a rule possible and practicable? Like, can you actually politically instantiate such a rule? And of course, the answer was always no, because what central bank will sub submit themselves to some you know s- superior rule which says you know, target nominal GDP or whatever. Um, and that was never possible. And I think that was the beauty of Bitcoin initially is that it, it was completely outside of the system. It didn't try and change the existing system. It was just this completely novel system and proposed a different rule set entirely, which was alien and all, all central bankers hated. Um, but it didn't even seek to engage with the institution of central banking. It just proposed its own thing. Um so we we made progress <laughs> towards finding a, a stable non-discretionary monetary rule. Now, was it the correct rule? Right is another question. Um, and so then, if you look at Ethereum, they aren't they don't have a non-discretionary rule. There's certainly discretion. Um, and so that's where I would say the potential for error creeps in is having a periodic assessment of the rule because you know, now there can be political motives that sort of creep in. Well, yeah. And so that's, that's my concern. You, you know, Bitcoin obviously has the benefit of being very, very focused on what it's, what it, what it's doing, so to speak. Whereas, you know, Ethereum and frankly, all these other next gen layer one blockchains um, are trying to be operating systems. They're trying to be application platforms. They're trying to support, very, very diverse kinds of utility value for a very, very diverse range of of applications for society. And the demands that exist there are, are, are you know, to some degree paramount. And there's an interplay there. And, and that's an interesting one. Um, very, very interesting one to watch. And as, as I read, you know, um, folks talking about uh, East today, that there is a hey, it's got it's it's like this internet digital commodity money, not sovereign. It has this great monetary policy, and it's this engine for X and Y and Z and so on. And that's generally viewed as like a really powerful thing. It's more utility value kind of kind of argument. Um, but it related to your kind of the discretion versus non discretionary uh, approach to monetary theory. Um, do the do the application utilities end up? having an impact where you're going to be making decisions um, on the monetary theory that uh, you know, on, on the, on the monetary policy that um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be the right decisions for uh, it as a, as a commodity money, but might be the right decisions for it to grow as an operating system. I think it's actually the risk is the reverse, which is that you are motivated by a monetary motive uh, to make decisions which actually impair the utility of the system. Right, right. And so I'll, I'll give a very simple example. Um, EIP-1559 was, you know, a new change that was added to Ethereum recently, which changed the core fee logic 
and introduced this notion of burning coins for some portion of the fees, that um, had the net effect of reducing issuance of Ethereum, which from an investment standpoint is really attractive. You know, I think that really led a lot of the rally. Yeah. And however, it introduces this different set of incentives across different stakeholder groups in Ethereum. So on the one hand, you have sort of token holders and people that are holding Ethereum in expectation of appreciation. And then on the other hand, you have people that are using Ethereum from a utility perspective because they value the block space and you know they uh, like the uh, settlement insurances that you get from Ethereum. Now, those two groups are now in some sense at odds with each other, in my opinion, post EIP-1559, because the first group wants fees to be structurally high so that lots of Ethereum is burned. And the second group is suffering the cost of those fees. They are providing the subsidy in the form of high fees to the first group um, because their economic activity, a portion of that is sort of siphoned off and burned retired effectively so it's like this ongoing stock buyback in retirement yeah which yeah. is would good for the monetary policy bad for the transactors yeah i mean i i face this all the time right so right we, i mean you're a perfect uh perfect example uh, yeah, yeah absolutely like i mean there was a uh uh a, a tweet today you know someone was like i sent uh you know i sent uh hundred dollars in usdc and it cost me two hundred dollars to send the hundred dollars and it was kind of like what's the what's the fucking point <laughs> right um and you know something like a stable coin you know on on a on a layer one that's got these kinds of fees like it, it basically makes it only useful for whales right only useful for, for for people who are doing like much larger transactions they want the finality, the speed, the security, the interoperability, all that, but it, it sort of prices that out. And, and now we're faced with this because generalized adoption of layer twos is not, it's not here. Um, and, and it, you know, it's one of the reasons why we've been focused on multi-chain um, in, in USDC as a protocol is because like we, we, we really believe like from a utility perspective, like we, we need more scalability. We need more you know, capital efficiency. We need more cost efficiency, and and we believe that there are 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 layer ones that are that are doing that effectively and and have the potential to be very decentralized and um and and, and provide you know that that use case. And it, it may be that you know ETH isn't just is just not able to do that at least for some time. Um, but uh, so we 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 face that we face that with our customers too, like NFT. We have a lot of companies that are building NFT projects, right? They're NFT. You know, NFT this entertainment NFT that musician NFT whatever right you know all these NFT projects which you know they don't care about the monetary you know theory here they're like I, I want you know to be able to have this seamless way to enable the sale of digital property and make it as mainstream as possible right I want to connect connect people so that they can they can interact with that and you know it's it's kind of the economics are, are are insane, and so other than you know marketplaces where there's just everything's priced out and it's like super speculative, right? It's 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 really challenging, and so you're seeing that clash of utility versus you know the the the, mon the monetary incentives happening. I think in, in, right now in front of us. Yeah, and I think it wasn't really a big consideration for the Ethereum community when they were debating that EIP. 
um, that it could actually set these stakeholders at odds with each other. But um, I think it's clear that it does. And so then the big question is, is Ethereum block space a commodity on even par with other genres of block space, like other blockchains, whatever it is, Avalanche, Solana, Polkadot, Near? Are they interchangeable and sort of fungible with each other? Or is there something really special about ETH block space where people are going to pay a structural premium to use it? Right, you know, an, an advantage over over these other ones. Right, I mean, it's it's it, it's all about network effects of ecosystem and and install base of like wallets and 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 user access and tooling and you know th- this kind of stuff. But you know, having my own view is like um, ha- having been through many platform wars, um, developer platform wars um, from the early '90s through through today, right. There are these big generational changes that no one can anticipate that happen in terms of what platforms people are building on. Like the, no one can predict them. They happen though. And so what I always assume is we don't know what platforms we're going to be building on in five to 10 years. We just, we, to say we know is just ludicrous because that's just never historically been the case. Um, because there are new either physical devices or, uh, you know, or, or, or distribution paths or other things that, that kind of emerge that, that do that. And, and I feel pretty strongly that that's going to be the case in, in the blockchain operating system space. I, I think of these more maturing third generation chains as competing in the internet operating system um, space. And um, nothing's a foregone conclusion at this point, in my view. Yeah, and this is, I think, what's so interesting because also I think the presence of USDC actually materially changed the outcome here, right? Because USDC is portable across chains, and so it allows you to yeah. more frictionlessly have your exit costs is lowered yeah. from a certain block space. Yeah. And so it makes it more competitive yeah. because liquidity is now mutual across yeah. many blockchains. That just was not the case two or three years ago. Right. So, so in a sense, you're accelerating the the conflict here uh, between these different transactional spaces. I don't, I don't want to know. Think of it as accelerating the conflict. I mean, I, I think we 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 the we're market in, based competition. Market based competition. Know. Thank you. Yes, definitely seeing that um, w- w- without a doubt. Which is maybe maybe we'll, we'll segue a little bit. So, sound money theory. You know, kind of if you if you anchor things like what we were talking about with Bitcoin or the monetary policy of Ethereum and, and their sort of sound money theory behind some of these. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also sort of sound money theory as it may apply to fiat currencies as well. And, um, you know, and, and, and in fact, it, it can apply to even fully reserved asset-backed fiat stable coins. And, you know, I, I think... Um, you've written about and talked about stablecoins a lot. I know you, you've called them crypto dollars. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call them stablecoins for them. Didn't catch on. <laughs> I tried. I, I, look, I, I, we didn't choose the word stablecoins. Like we, we were in 2017 when we put the center white paper out and around USDC. It was fiat tokens, which obviously did not take hold either. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, so so you know, I, I think. Um, one of the things that I've been really interested in is what is sound money um, monetary theory as applied to the utilization of fiat money and its expression in, in a digital currency world, its expression in a, in a 
public blockchain world. And um, actually, when I launched the Money Movement um, series in the height of the pandemic last spring, um, what some of the early guests I had on were people who'd been thinking about writing about studying the Chicago plan, um, which you know, was Irving Fisher and a whole host of other very influential Chicago school economists following the Great Depression, who basically had seen all the bank runs and it was the run on the bank. And why, why was there a run on the bank? Because banks were fractional reserve lending and, and they couldn't meet their obligations. And the, 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 the classic, uh, the kind of classic story and, and that risk taking led to, uh, you know, ex- deepening of the Great Depression. And, and so the, the theory obviously was, was that, um, it was, it was possible to effectively separate, um, you know, the the sort of st- storage of value and payment utility side of banking into a full reserve model, and 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 separate that from you know the provisioning of of lending, um, and not have banks be in the business of creating money. Um, but you know, you, you're still having essentially the the you know government debt, or back then it was you know gold backed treasuries uh you know and and so we could we could talk about the the, the base m0 what is m0 uh in, in practice in in a fiat money world that's just a whole nother discussion but but let's put that aside for a second and come back to 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 even like we're going to take for granted that you know somehow the purchasing power and the uh, uh, and the rate of inflation and the management of that is sort of reasonable, say, in the eurozone or the dollar uh, economy. Again, put, put aside that discussion because I, I think that's a debatable, obviously, right? But just assuming you have that, is the construct of a full reserve dollar digital currency feasible to actualize the, the needs of the economy, of the real world economy? And the argument has been, you know, banks need to be able to create money and monetary policy and, 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 the, and the role of the central bank in kind of um, pricing that is how you incentivize credit velocity, money multipliers, other things like that, um, and, and, and how you contract it as well. And I mean, that's pretty dogmatic right now, like and the, the alignment between the central bank, fiat currency central bank policy and the you know the the two tier banking system and the role of 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 banks in creating new money and we we you know have taken a view that um you can you you can have a full reserve monetary system um and it can actually be safer and more resilient and you know there is a way to apply sound money theory in the fiat world and in the stablecoin world um and, and those debates are being played out right now, but I, I'd love, maybe I just laid out a whole bunch of stuff, but, but I'm, I'm interested to hear you unpack some of that and, and share your thoughts um, on, on stable coins and their relationship to these monetary theory questions. Yeah, that's so much to cover there. Um, you know, I, I guess there's a difference maybe in terms of sort of like, what's the most prudent approach to regulating stable coins with regards to sort of... Um, what the characteristics of the institutional characteristics should be. So, you know, what, what are they holding? Who regulates them? 
what are their obligations? Are they fiduciaries? What are the uh, claim and the claims and lit- uh, liquidation of the um, creditors effectively, or or the note holders, whatever you want to call them? Token holders. Um, token holders, I suppose. Yeah, I always think about it in um, as an analogy to people holding banknotes. I think of uh, stable coins as banknotes issued by uh, private entities. Just digital bank notes. Well, I mean, our, our, our M2 money today are, are, are like bank notes that, that, that there are rules around how much risk they can take, but it's really just an IOU against the, the, the debt, you know, and, and, and investment strategy of the underlying institution, right? It's a chase dollar right. is different than, you know, the, the, you know, whatever Bank of Argentinian dollar, right? They're just, they're really different, uh, different characteristics for for what that iou represents yeah but at least within the us you know there's uh you know they are treated as uh equal uh they are treated as equal yeah yeah um, and uh the solvency of the institution doesn't matter as much because there's there's the underlying guarantee so you know there's the one discussion of well should stable coins be you know e-money uh issuers and and should they be um only holding, you know, extremely liquid um, assets underneath them. But then I think there's maybe the more interesting discussion that you're hinting at, which is, you know, wh- is there a possibility for a banking system that's sort of Rothbardian in nature and um, is a full reserve system? And uh, what would that look like? And I, my mind strays to prior um, private uh, banking systems where effectively there was very little regulation from above. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people in the US are, are a lot of our policymakers and regulators talk about the quote unquote free banking system uh, in from 1830s to 1860s in America, but that actually had regulation. There was a, actually a, a good deal of regulation there. Um, and um, arguably the regulation is what. Uh, in my view, cause a lot of the issues with that system. But if you look at truly unregulated private banking systems and what its their characteristics were, I would think back to Canada during the same period, or Scotland um, from you know seventeen fourteen to eighteen forty four, or there's uh, Swiss episodes or Swedish episode, and um, those were not full reserve systems. You know they they were actually. Um, you know, pretty fractionalized. So you'd hold um, as in Scotland uh, because no one really wanted to ever redeem the banknotes for the gold. You um, they would hold two to five percent of the um, outstanding value of the notes in gold in specie, um, and because there were, uh, it was a plural system of note issue with a number of different banks issuing notes against their reserves. The notes would just um, ultimately clear through a clearinghouse, and um, and the banks would settle up against each other, and so there wasn't often an outflow of gold from the banking system, and so because that was infrequent, and also because the banks had sort of um, some contractual ability to suspend redeemability for short periods of time, they would actually pay interest uh, when they did that. Uh, there just wasn't a need to hold a huge amount in reserves. And so they developed a pretty efficient system of holding, you know, a pretty light reserve. And 
you know, I think George Selgin is probably the number one academic who's written about this, which is, you know, at equilibrium, if you eliminate like regulation and constraints, you know, what do, where do these bank systems equilibrate in terms of the the quantity of credit? Because of course, there's no shortage of credit being created. Scotland was industrializing that period is a very productive, you know, economic period. And, you know, I'm not sure you actually get in the wild, so to speak, uh, these full reserve systems um, as the basis, because, you know, banks ultimately just want to make money. And uh, it's more difficult if you have a full reserve and you're um, acting as um, there's a legal term for it, uh, bailment, uh, I think, where you you're custodying uh, coins and, and, you know, yeah. you're just holding them in the bank. Right. But in, in a world where, um, you know, effectively the, the money exists on a public blockchain infrastructure where it can be um, programmatically and contractually locked and utilized um, at the speed of the internet to any endpoint on the internet. And where we're approaching a world where, the cost of even flash lending, you know, mm. and 10 USDC is a, is a tiny fraction of a cent. And you could have that available in a credit pool for minutes or hours or, or things like that. Like, I feel like a lot of these models were, and even fractional lending itself were sort of based on the capital inefficiency of mm. what it took to store value, move value, um, reclaim value, et cetera. But in a, in, a, in a world where it's all instantaneous and it's all frictionless and it doesn't cost anything and you have programmatic, perfectly you know, secure and auditable and transparent kind of control functions, right? it feels like you could potentially build things that are both safe um, and create money velocity. Um, that's just a theory I have. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Actually, um, I I agree. I think in in crypto land, you just need a lesser monetary base to satisfy the same amount of commerce right, as you would right. need. Be- I mean, you, you, because settlement is so so fast. Yeah, and I I know it's not a perfect um, it's not a perfect view now because the the, the the use cases vary so much, but like the velocity of money in stable coins is so much higher than the velocity of money in, in M2 money, um, like dramatically higher. Um, yeah, I haven't looked recently, but, um, I mean, we also have to be careful with, uh, I'll, I'll caveat one thing. I mean, I know I'm like partially responsible for some of the, some of that data, but, um, uh, you know, I think the actual velocity calculation in legacy world is, something like um, GDP divided by monetary base, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, you take the final value of the goods and services and you strip out the intermediate transactions and you strip out securities related transactions mm-hmm. and then you divide it by monetary base. So I would caution that it's not necessarily like with like, because frankly, we don't have a crypto GDP figure as much as I'd like to have one. That's right. No, I, I think that's right. You're, 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 you know, if, if there's like tr- truly like financial transactions that are for financial, you know, a- activity, it can inflate those um, very, very significantly. Yeah. But I mean, the, the ultimate point is just, you know, stable coins at um, what, I don't know what the aggregate value of them is, 130 billion, something like that. They're satisfying 
just an enormous quantity of economic yeah. transactions on a par with other you know major payment methods um you know probably a couple order of magnitudes below f- what fedwire does but rival with your visas and your paypals for and sure growing question. fast right we just crossed two trillion dollars of value transacted in usdc that's usdc alone alone yeah yeah which is yeah pr- it's pretty incredible crazy. i mean for for something that's effectively five years old or less, not even uh, it's like three years old <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah, I meant stable coins in general. Oh, stable coins yeah, in general, yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it, it is, it has, it has grown um, immensely. Um, I know we're 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 coming up on time, but I, I want to maybe and and like we could definitely talk about a lot more for a lot longer. We, we can maybe next time do a, a, a you know <laughs> two hour episode or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, maybe just a cl- closing thought. Totally transitioning to a very very different topic, which is. Um, you know, we we started talking about distributed companies, and um, you know I'm very very interested in what's happening with decentralized corporate forms, um, on chain corporate forms, DAOs. As 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 they're talking about, although someone on Twitter was saying no, they're DOs, they're you know de- decentralized organizations versus decentralized autonomous organizations. What are actually autonomous? Right. Just right. decentralized organizations. So DOs and DAOs. It really feels like to me, you know, I think of public change as sort of like a, a new global economic infrastructure that we can build on and experiment with. And um, it really feels like we're seeing the birth of new kinds of micro economic units of organization that that have just never been possible. Right. So that they're there. What what are your, you know, your your high level thoughts on on this on this space and. Um, and what are you most excited about? Yeah, and I see venture funds investing in DAOs directly now um, and just facing off against um, often an anonymous group uh, of individuals. Um, and it's uh, it's incredible. I mean, uh, we haven't been quite bold enough to do that from our firm just mm-hmm. yet. We like to sort of know our counterparties um, <laughs> if it's uh, for putting money at stake. But um, yeah, I mean, the growth of DAOs, I guess no, we can't call them DAOs uh, <laughs> after that. That's honestly a great point. They're not autonomous. Yeah. Um, it's really surprised me. Um, and the fact that now there's just an industry of probably tens of thousands of people that work for these entities. Yeah. Um, I remember back in 2017, I interviewed at Fidelity for the role that I took there. And I sat down with... Um, the head of their um, sort of private internal pool of capital they have there. And he asked me for my long-term predictions around the crypto space. And I said, economic activity will move away from being organized by corporations and it would be or- organized right. on chain. Of course. And uh, at the time, I don't think there really were any DAOs. I mean, I yeah. was, I'd, I'd been sort of inspired by the DAO, as in the uh, right the Ethereum. DAO, and it was like part of the white paper, uh, Ethereum white paper, and it's like yeah, but it was very theoretical, and of course the DAO was an enormous uh, failure, yeah. <laughs> kind of a disaster, yeah. and and I just got such a raised eyebrow at that statement when I said that, and I think they sort of just forgave 
forgave me for saying something like that. I, I led with that at the at the kickoff of my my company All Hands uh, uh, event a week or so ago. I was like, "This is this is actually the the long road here is we're back basically rebuilding economic activity around." these units of organization that are going to happen on chain. Like that is, that's, that is what's going to happen. Yeah, I think it's correct. And I think there's so many advantages, like for instance, um, and when I talk to regulators about this, their eyes actually light up, um, right. which is, it takes a lot. Ability, uh, yeah. It takes a lot to do that. But um, you know, when you say about how you can get a real time financial statement right. on a per block basis, um, if you're looking at cash flows that are on chain and it's fully auditable and you can actually yeah. trace through the cash flows and balance sheet and the income statement programmatically, you don't actually need an you know, accounting firm to do it. Right. Um, they tend to sort of start to understand. Yeah. The caution I would urge is, you know, if you think about the joint stock corporation, that was pioneered, I want to say, in the 1600s. Right. And then it wasn't really refined for... Yeah, the late 1800s, really. The a couple hundred years. Industrial revolution, kind of, yeah, and global. Experience. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have limited liability corporations for a long time. Yeah, uh, public equity wasn't yeah. really a thing for a long time, and so real securities markets didn't develop for a long time. And then corporate governance, of course, just took hundreds and hundreds of years to really refine. Right. And then you know we had the American model of common law corporate governance, which is yep. the, sort of the dominant successful model. It just, you know, that's the way common law works. It incorporates all of these sort of um, case studies and failures and edge cases, and then it incorporates them in sort of the body of the law. And it just takes a long time. Now, of course, things move faster these days, but I think we're going to have the same process with DAOs where we have a lot of learning to do around how to actually organize these things and structure them. Yeah. And uh, do we create legal wrappers around them or not? And do we have vesting and how do we segregate duties and how do we uh, introduce accountability and how do we, you know, engage in treasury management and uh, limited principal agent problems. Who resolves the dispute? You know? yeah. yeah. So, you know, and all of those things are accounted for in, uh, in sort of the, the corporate governance literature, if imperfectly so in some cases. So that's basically my model. And of course, you know, there's obviously many successful DAOs today, but I think there's kind of informal rule sets that generally govern those. Right. The DAO as current, like the notion of a DAO as currently structured is sort of like very incomplete in terms of codifying the the modes of activity, um, you know, within that sort of like semi-corporate setting. So I do worry about that. Um, it's not something that's like necessarily solvable. It's just that we have to learn yeah. with the passage of time, what uh, what things can go wrong, and then sort of like how we deal with them, basically. The merging of of of, of meat space with DAOs and 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 common law and case law and you know, there's a lot there. It's pretty it's pretty exciting. So, um, well, cool. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. And and Nick, um, really enjoyed the conversation today. Um, always always love to chat with you, and I'm glad we could do this and and make it available to uh, everyone yeah i appreciate the invitation this is uh, this is great Bye.